Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy, Paul first establishes the necessity of proper theology being taught by the leaders of the church for the sake of the unity of the church. He contrasted that sort of leadership and teaching with those who wanted to be teachers of the law but shouldn't be because they didn't have any idea what they were talking about. And in the second chapter, he explained the importance of prayer, that the gospel would go forth, that people would be converted, and the unity that's necessary in that prayer and the unique way that women are engaged in that work, both in limiting them from exercising authority and leading the church, and also in giving themselves to the bearing and raising of children. And as we saw, it's, it's a sweet doctrine because it makes sense of the world and the way we are. It's a beautiful thing. And then in this third chapter, Paul turns, returns to the idea of leadership and explains what kind of men are supposed to be overseeing the church. And last week we saw that men are exhorted to desire to be leaders in the church. And we saw the weight and the importance of that work and what is required of men before they are made elders. So we read those requirements, and it's a substantial list, one that nobody can claim to actually have followed, just like the law. We know that we are lawbreakers, that we, none of us measure up to the command to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. And yet, that is the list that we are to be judging men on on the basis of that list for the sake of determining whether to put them into leadership or not. And so, it's a continuum. It's a judgment call. It's hard work, not just for men who desire to be in leadership to seek to do those things, but it's also hard work for us as the body of Christ to be knowing one another and looking at one another and discerning whether or not this is the kind of man who ought to be in leadership. I was reading in... I believe it was 3 John, a couple of weeks ago, short book, read the whole thing, not reading in it, read it, and uh, one of the things that stood out to me this time that I don't remember ever noticing before was the way in which the, the communication from John, he, he explains that there is a church leader who's rejecting what he's saying and even putting men out of the church who are accepting what John the Apostle is writing from the Lord, in the Lord. And so what we have, even in the time where the Bible is still being written, is we have an example of men who have been placed into leadership who not only shouldn't be there but are teaching things that they that, that are that are so contrary to the word of god that they're willing to separate from themselves to be antagonistic to the very doctrines of god as proclaimed by god's apostles you see that now today that's that's no surprise to us we see it all the time we think well you know there's There's heretical churches that claim the name of Christ. Then there's churches that are being disobedient to the point of heresy, maybe. Uh, And there's, there's this whole continuum, right? But when you go all the way back to the time where the Bible is being written, we expect there to be some 
greater unity. At least that's what I expect coming to it. And then you read 1 Timothy and you're like, wait a minute, Hymenaeus and Alexander already exist. While Paul is writing and, and John is saying, There's, they're even excommunicating men for being faithful. It's mind-boggling, right? And yet, it's not mind-boggling, and we ought to be encouraged by it as we face the same thing today. And it is something that those who are faithful to Scripture, especially those who are doing the work of teaching and preaching, face on a regular basis. The sorts of accusations and the sorts of uh, slander, People who are willing to say that uh, whole churches are excommunicant simply because they faithfully follow the word of God. And so there's division in the body. And church leaders, here we have in Timothy, the, the leaders giving, being given the work, Timothy is being given the work of silencing those men, right? Of demonstrating the true theology, the true doctrine, of, of getting leaders in place that are, that are willing to be faithful, that do have the foggiest clue what they're talking about, that understand the purpose of the law, Right? And yet, we have to always remember that 1 Timothy is not just written to Timothy, but written to the whole church at Ephesus, and really for us as well, the whole wide church to read and to learn from. And so that's why I make the, the re-emphasize this point, that you must be discerning in who you follow. You must be discerning in who you place over you through your vote, right? And that vote is on the one hand, made through attendance at a church that is faithful, and on the other hand, at the point of elections for the offices that are being described here. And so it's not satisfactory for you to simply say, well, you know, those requirements are for other people. The easiest people that can do that are women, right? Well, those requirements are for other people. And, uh, you know... Who leads, leads, I guess. It's not acceptable. You must be making those judgments, those discernments yourself. That's why the whole church is given this list. So let's read it now again. And we're going to focus specifically this time on just one of those requirements. I'm not going to take a week on each one of them. In fact, I'm skipping right to the end. We, we spent some time on all of them last week. This week... I want us to focus just on one requirement, that elders have a good reputation with those outside the church. Like I said, we could take a whole long time on each one of these. This one, I think, is probably uh, one of the most confusing to us, or easy to, to, to get wrapped around the axle on, because it's a bit of a conundrum. Because... The world hates the message of the gospel, hates the true doctrine of God, right? Doctrine just means teaching, and the teaching is ultimately the gospel, the fact that we are sinners, that the only way we can be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ, His Son, who died and was buried and rose again, right? For our sakes, So so this is the true doctrine, the necessity of us being reconciled to God, of obeying Him, and the work that God has done for us, out of His great love for us, so that that can happen. This is what Paul is talking to Timothy about early on in the book, that these guys don't, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't have any idea what they're talking about, even though they make bold claims. And so, the world hates that doctrine. And if the world hates that doctrine, and that is the doctrine, that is the teaching that elders are to be proclaiming with all authority, 
how in the world can elders have a good reputation with those outside the church? Right? And so it's, it's kind of a, a strange requirement that there be men having a good reputation with those outside the church. Let's read this again, 1 Timothy 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 this week. Please stand for the reading of God's word. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, I say that this is a bit of a conundrum, easy to get wrapped around around the axle with with this requirement that elders are to have a good reputation with those outside the church. And it's true, it is easy to get wrapped around the axle. It's also really easy to understand what Paul is talking about. I don't expect that any of you are totally confused by what he's saying, but I think that it's worth taking this week to expound a bit further on that so that we really understand the temptations and the, uh, the ins and outs of how this works. At its core, this just means that uh, these men are not known by the world to be hypocrites. People who claim to uh, be moral because they claim the name of Jesus Christ, right? And yet, in their business dealings outside the world, everybody knows that they're lying cheating, stealing, lacking integrity, right? These these men are not the hypocrites that everybody complains about in the church. You follow? So that's, at at its basic level, that's that's it. It's that simple. That's what the good reputation that Paul is speaking of, that's what he's referring to. That these men are not Hypocrites, And we know that the world knows what a hypocrite is. We know that this is a common complaint about churches, right? And so when you're talking to somebody uh, and they don't go to church, they may give any number of reasons why they don't go to church. Maybe they never have gone to church. Maybe they didn't grow up in church. Maybe they started out going to church and eventually they stopped. Maybe there was some sort of bad experience. Typically, if they've had any kind of interaction with churches, you will you should not be surprised for them to raise as their excuse why they don't go to church that churches are full of hypocrites. This is a normal complaint. 
And one of the reasons that it's a normal complaint is because it's a convenient complaint. It's a convenient excuse where you get to blame somebody else for your sin if you don't go to church. If you don't go to church, that is a sin. And most people who are willing to give an excuse why they don't go to church give an excuse because they know that they should be going, right? And so just like Adam when he says, the woman that you gave to me, he tries to shift the blame off onto somebody else. So those who are not going to church and feel some sort of guilt about that like to shift the blame over onto somebody else. And the person or people that they like to shift the blame over onto are those who do go to church. If their judgment were true that the church is full of hypocrites and nobody should go to a church that's full of hypocrites, then really nobody should be going to church at all. Right? But is the church full of hypocrites? Yes. And that's the other reason that this this excuse is so convenient. Because... There is not a man among us who is not a hypocrite, a sinner. Right? And so it's such a convenient excuse because what can you say? The only thing you can say is, you got me there. Right? I mean, that's what they're, that, that's why it's convenient. Yep. I, I mean, I guess there's nothing else I can say to you. Your judgment is true and correct. I, I guess nobody should go to church. Well, of course, that's not all that you can say, right? But you have to acknowledge the fact that the church is full of sinners. If we don't acknowledge that, then we're liars. That's what John says in in 1 John, right? He who says that he has no sin is lying. Liar. Just making the hypocrisy worse, right? But, and and so this is just a, this is one facet of this whole having a good reputation with those outside the church, right? Knowing that we are sinners, that all of the elders and pastors, as well as all of the people who sit in the pews, are sinners, and that that sin is always hypocritical, right? Because Here you are, a teacher of the law, and yet you don't keep the law yourself. This is what Jesus condemns when he he goes in. uh, Yeah, Jesus does. But I was thinking of Paul in Romans, actually, where Paul uh, says, you who, what's the list that he gives? He says, you who fight against or teach against or condemn idolatry, do you rob temples, right? Oh, I can't find it fast enough. Here it is. No, there it isn't. Yeah, I'm looking in there. What, what, what verse does it start on? Oh, there it is. Thank you. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? And the answer, of course, is what? Yes. The, the whole point of Paul bringing this up is that everybody is a breaker of the law. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law 
through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So this is, this is the classic, you know, the, the proof that when everybody says, ah, the church is full of hypocrites, they are right. They are right. And yet, they are wrong. They are wrong in their excuse. Right? So here we have Paul writing also in 1 Timothy, and he says that the elders, or someone who's going to be an elder, one of the requirements before he's made an elder, is that he has to have a good reputation with those outside the church. And yet, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? That tension... is the tension of justification and sanctification. It's the tension of being told on the one hand that we are made righteous, we are saved, we we have new hearts, we are regenerated on the one hand, and on the other hand that we must begin to purify ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit and live in newness of life. You see that? And so, yes, the church is full of hypocrites. But there's two kinds of hypocrites. There's those who are truly hypocrites, those who are not sanctified, not seeking the sanctification without which no man will see God, who are simply looking to put the weight of the law on others and not seeking to obey it themselves, right? And then there are those who, seeking to teach others the law, are teaching themselves. Seeing their own sin, they then turn and repent and begin to call others to repent as well, as they themselves have. And so that's not really hypocrisy. It's it's a sinner saying, I am a sinner. I do sin. I sin in these ways. I'm selfish. I like being a pastor. I like being an elder. I like having authority because of the perks. Yes, it's great. But that's sinful. And so I desire not to do that. Please forgive me. And so, you have to have a good reputation. The elder has to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Now then there's true hypocrisy. There are those who seek to be leaders, seek to teach without teaching themselves, seek to lead others without having ever led themselves. True hypocrites. And one of the common complaints with regard to this is um, that if the church is full of hypocrites, one of the ways that it's full of hypocrites is the love of money. So you'll you'll hear people talking about how... uh, It's all just about money. I went to church and the pastor was preaching about money and it was just all about himself getting money. That was what it all came down to. That's what the whole point of organized religion is. That's what the whole point of church is, is just for some people to be able to live off of the hard work of others. And are there men in positions of leadership in the church in America who are doing that? Uh Uh-huh, yeah, absolutely, right? You can see them on TV. You can see them in the local churches. There's absolutely no doubt that this is a sin that is common 
And one of the things that's condemned in these two lists is the love of money for elders, and then for deacons, what? Sordid gain, yeah, the love of sordid gain. Sordid meaning dirty, dirty money. In other words, they love money. And so, and so with this charge from the world of hypocrisy, you can see with every one of the other items in the list, examples of men who are doing that, men who are hypocritical in that way, who are not apologetic about it, not repenting of that sin, but men who are simply giving themselves to that sin and making use of their position of leadership and authority to perpetuate that sin in themselves to the victimization of others. And this is what Jesus speaks of when he says that the Gentiles love to lord it over those who are beneath them. The rulers of the Gentiles love to lord it over those who they're leading, right? It's for their own private, personal gain. And the world sees this. Those outside the church know when this is going on. They also get it wrong a lot of the time, right? So the person who brings up the fact that it's all about money, what do you think the chances are that the sin that they have given themselves to more than any other is the worship and love of money? It's greater than 50-50, I guarantee it. Have they also seen an example of some man or men, some particular church where there is hypocrisy with regard to money and that the leaders love to drive fancy cars, love to have the the best, the first place in everything, financially? Absolutely, they, they probably have. And yet, what's really going on is they love money. And that's why they don't want to go to church. So if elders are to have a good reputation with those outside the church, this is, you know, I've sort of, I, I keep going back and forth on this, saying on the one hand, the world sees sin, recognizes it, and accurately says there's hypocrisy in the church. And on the other hand, I say, but they get it wrong. They use even men who are faithful, even men who are repentant, even men who are being sanctified, even men who meet these requirements to the best of any man's ability, right? The world is willing to condemn them. so that they don't feel the pressure of their own sin, so that they don't feel the need to repent themselves. And so there is that problem, the problem that the world hates faithful men. Now, what's the proof of this? Well, Jesus, of course, is the proof, right? Because he says... The servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you too. And the world did hate Jesus. What other proof do we need? Well, we can bring it forward to today. I think a great example today is Mike Pence. You know, Mike Pence seeks to, seeks to avoid the hypocrisy that the whole world is coming unglued, yelling about the sin of abuse of authority, right? And, and how that, and, and sexual immorality among leaders. Are you following? And so Mike Pence has made a point of avoiding that sin 
through personal discipline in his life and refusing to allow himself to be ever in a position where he could sin in that way. And the world comes unglued in anger at him. Right? Why does the world hate Mike Pence? What's that? They're jealous? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 it's because he's holy. It's because he demonstrates to them the only way that you can ever be free from this sin that the world is caught, trapped, enslaved to. And, the, and we as, an, as Americans, we are enslaved to this sin of the lusts of our flesh in regard to relationships between men and women. And so here he has this, this public witness that you need not be caught. You need not be trapped. You need not be enslaved to this sin, right? And he proves it through his good behavior and his reputation is trashed. He doesn't have a good reputation with those outside the church. Now, don't hear me saying more about Mike Pence than I'm saying. Don't hear me saying anything about politics, but but pay attention. Keep your eye on the ball with regard to just this question. Now, there are even those inside the church who are willing to condemn Mike Pence for following what now has become called the Mike Pence rule, but used to be called the Billy Graham rule, and before that used to be called common sense about how men and women are to interact with one another when they should and shouldn't be together alone, which is to say only when you're married to each other. This was, this was the common sense that the world had for, for centuries. Now, does doing that keep you from sinning and lusting? No, of course not. But does it protect against much sin and much abuse? Absolutely, right? And, and more particularly, Mike Pence does this not simply according to his own testimony for the sake of his political career, which is wisdom in and of itself. But he does it in order to seek to glorify his Lord and Savior who called him to this holy living. You see? Now this is just going off of his own testimony. We don't have to, we don't have to be in church with him, know him personally, and, and decide whether he's a Christian truly or this, that, and the other. The, the point is simply that through his public testimony, both in word and in action, what he is declaring is that it is possible to be free from this sin by... Now, here's where it gets confusing. How? How how is it possible? By giving yourself in obedience by faith to Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what is being declared. And then being proved by his actions in protecting himself and others from that sin. You see that? And so the world hates Mike Pence because through his words and his actions, he is declaring the gospel. He is calling the world, he's calling Hollywood to true repentance. This is, I mean, if you've ever been confused about why, on the one hand, everybody is burning Mike Pence at the stake, and on the other hand, flipping out over the fact that there's all these men in Hollywood, in entertainment, in politics, in the church, everywhere, there's all these men and women who are falling into this sin and, and, have, and have 
and they're also being burned at the stake. And you're thinking, doesn't it make, isn't it kind of like common sense to say that there ought, like, in order to protect against this, that, like, Mike Pence's rule would might maybe be a good idea? If you've ever been confused about that, don't be confused any longer because what's really going on is that he is declaring the gospel. He is calling the world to true repentance, not to the false repentance that says you can have all of your lust and avoid actually harming people. You can take fire into your lap and not be burned. You can sin and not be caught. It doesn't actually matter whether you lust as long as you don't actually act on that lust. Your desires don't matter. And of course, you bring that into the church, and the church is starting to declare those same things in many places, right? Not the things that Mike is declaring, but that the world is declaring. And so Mike Pence is even being attacked by those in the Reformed world. And the reason is because he's calling us to repentance, and we hate it. That's what's going on. So be confused no longer. Common sense or lack thereof has nothing to do with it. It all comes down to the gospel of Jesus Christ and repentance. Of course the world hates the declaration of the gospel. And that's where we begin to truly understand the pressures that come to bear on this particular requirement of elders that they have a good reputation without those outside the church. Because this is just one of many, many uh, requirements that we see listed that we can twist into sin in our own lives. And here's how the church and, and those in church leadership are willing and able to do that by saying, I'm simply trying to keep a good reputation with those outside the church. While what? While beginning to proclaim bad doctrine. What Timothy is being warned against from the beginning, right? You understand. So, so what's going on is that we swap this requirement that we have a, that, that men who are to lead are to have a good reputation with those outside the church. We swap that with the fear of man and the love of man's approval. And so this is the exact opposite of what's being required by Paul and by God through his Holy Spirit in this passage. And we've got to be able to see the difference between those two things. We must be able to see the difference between those two things. It's easy to understand at the outset what Paul is saying when he says having a good reputation. You say, well, that just means that every, you know that he's not known for his, he's not known for, for being a, a dirty old man, or he's not known for being a, a, a thief or dishonest business dealings. He's not known for his hypocrisy, right? Easy at the outset to say, yeah, well, I can see what that means. It's not that hard to understand. But it's also easy for us to miss that little transfer that we do, that little swap that takes place when, when we say, on the one hand, I'm seeking a good reputation with those outside the church, and on the other hand, what we're actually doing is fearing man and beginning to pursue the world's approval rather than God's. It's so easy to switch from one to the other. We may see, we may not see, we may never know, but I suspect that that Paige Patterson is being crucified in the same way that Mike Pence is. I don't know if you guys know, he got fired and and uh, he, he got halfway fired and then he got totally fired and uh, from his position leading a, a Bible college seminary. And... Um, and it's over this Me Too movement 
that the world has going on? And are there Christian men who are guilty in the same way that the men in Hollywood and entertainment are guilty? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of covering up abuse and of uh, refusing to protect the, the weak and the helpless, taking advantage of position in order to uh, take advantage of women. Absolutely. All over the place this happens. But like I said, I suspect that what's going on is that Paige Patterson is being crucified because the world hates him because what? He's a man. And he is willing to declare the truth. And so it's a constant temptation for the church. Now, if I'm right about Paige, then what, we're, what you're seeing is that the church, Christians, are willing to get rid of faithful men in order to get the approval of the world. Okay? And I'm willing to be right or wrong about that particular, but I want you to see that that situation is, is an example of one of the places where we have to, we have to see ourselves. We have to, we have to know ourselves. We have to know our own sins. We have to know our own temptations. We have to recognize what the pressures are that the world is bringing to bear on the church. And we have to be willing to say, uh, you know, I smell something dirty. I smell a rat. And where does smelling the rat start? The rat, smelling the rat starts by smelling the rat in yourself and recognizing like, well, you know, if I was on the board and there was this kind of publicity coming in, I think I'd probably want that publicity to go away. And the easiest way to make the publicity go away would probably be to have a sacrifice. Right? You, you see, you, you have to know yourself, you have to know what the temp, and, and, and what the reformed world today doesn't believe in anymore is sin. And so we don't believe, when we look at this, having a good reputation outside the church, we think, yes, a holy man. A man who does good all the time and never, never has any sin that anybody outside the church could ever see and take offense at. That's absurd. That man doesn't exist. There is no such thing as the holy man in that regard. There are only sinful men. And so if we don't believe in sin, if we don't believe in its ongoing power in the life even of believers, then we will never get this right. We'll never smell a rat. We'll never smell a rat in ourselves. We'll never question our own motives and our own desires. And we certainly won't be able to discern for the sake of other men whether it's right or wrong what they're doing. And you say, well, why do we have to discern whether it's right or wrong? And I say, well, actually, you don't have to with Paige. That's why I say I could be right or wrong. It doesn't actually matter. But we do have to be able and willing and practicing discernment. Because why? Well, because the church votes on its elders. You decide where to go to church. The only way you can do that and take any account of these verses is by actually having some sort of understanding of these requirements and what they look like and what the ways that we, the ways that we paper mache over the holes and be like, oh no, there's everything, everything is fine here. You go up to it and you sniff and you tap on it. You know, I think there's something rotten behind that. It smells kind of like rats. It smells kind of like the sin in my heart. And how does that happen? Well, it happens all the time today with those, those men 
who are faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is causing the world to absolutely hate them, to gnash at the, to, to foam at the mouth and gnash their teeth at a faithful man, and the other Christians around them, the church body, they go, well, you know, you're just so confrontational. You're just, there's just so much conflict around you. I, you don't have a good reputation with those outside the church. You don't meet the requirements, and, and we're done with you. We're done reading you. We're done listening to you. We're done having you as a pastor. We're done having you as an elder. We're done following you. We're done with you. You see, this happens all the time today. We resolve this, this tension between having a good reputation with those outside the church as God intends for us to understand it and the world saying, well, we hate him by going with the world. Now, that's with the church people. I want you also to recognize that among the leaders, the temptation is always also to try to keep that reputation with the world. And and the way that you make, the the way that you keep a good reputation with the world in the way that the, the world never hates you is by being double tongued. And this is one of the requirements for deacons that they not be double tongued. The way that you the way that you avoid persecution from the world is by saying to the church one thing and saying to the world another thing and trying to trying to keep either one from from recognizing the antipathy between those two statements. And so That's what it means to be double-tongued. To say to one person what they want to hear and to say to the other person what they want to hear. And the more sophisticated you are in talking, the better you are at being double-tongued without people being able to recognize that you're being double-tongued. That you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. That you're saying contradictory things. Or that you're causing people to believe that you're saying two different things depending on who they are, even though you've only said one thing. You see how that works? If you're really good with language, you can, you can look at the two different people that you're talking to and you can speak just perfectly so that they both hear what they want to hear. That's the constant temptation for church officers. To resolve the problem of the world hating you, or the danger of the world hating you, by making it appear to the church that you've never compromised with the world, and then somehow the world never hearing the gospel from you. And that's the only way, remember, for the world not to hate you, is if they never hear the word of God proclaimed with power and authority from you. That's the definition of double-tongued. So what's the actual solution? Well, the actual solution for elders is to live a holy life so that they have nothing that they can accuse you of. Now we know, I've already, gotten, I've already said over and over again, that you will sin. You will sin, you will sin, you will sin, you will continue to sin. But repentance goes a long way. Confessing your sin goes a long way. But it's not enough. You do actually have to live. You do actually have to meet these requirements. First Peter 3.16 says, Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are 
Does it say accused? No, it says slandered. So that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And that's what's going on with the world and Mike Pence. The world is being put to shame in their behavior, right? Even as they revile his good behavior and slander him. It's a beautiful thing to see. The only only accusation that the world can bring is what? Well, the accusation that they bring is, you hate women, as he protects women. You see? And you say, well, you just said women need to be protected, so therefore you hate women. And I say, yeah, okay. No, I say, God has said from the beginning they were male and female. And until you believe that, you have not begun to believe God's word. It's time to repent. It's time to follow God. This is the gospel. The only thing that they could do to Jesus was slander. Remember all the false accusations? They kept trying to get even, even, even two that would line up with their accusations against him. There was nothing bad that they could say about him. Well, he kept doing good things, and that made us so angry, so let's kill him. He kept healing people. He even did it on the Sabbath, and that's gotta be, there's gotta be something wrong with that. Right? They have to resort to slander to take down Jesus. They have to resort to slander to take down faithful elders. If you live a holy life. And that's harder than it seems. Because on the one hand, you actually have to live a holy life. And that's on the impossible side of the hard and easy spectrum. Right? And if you don't do that, then you will fall into reproach. A snare your ministry will be ineffective. And that's actually Paul's primary concern here. He isn't really concerned about the individual elder. Paul has a greater goal than the individual elder or even the individual church. He he is looking to the glory of God and the gospel going forth in power from the church as a whole. And that starts with individual churches, and that starts with individual men, right? Right? And so that's his, that's his greater goal here, that the ministry would not be ineffective, that it wouldn't have bad teaching, a false gospel being taught. And the other reason that it's harder than it seems to, to live a holy life is because it's not enough to just do good. You also have to avoid doing the things with the appearance of evil. Right? You see how that's a step beyond? And and now I can make it even harder still when I point out that you not only have to avoid doing evil, you have to avoid the appearance of evil. You have to avoid the appearance of evil to those who don't understand what evil is. That's real hard, isn't it? Now, there's two aspects of that. One aspect is the thing that I've already been hammering and hammering and hammering on, which is that you have to avoid the appearance of evil to those who are going to look at that and say, what you're doing is evil. And you can't allow that to affect you. So there's, on the one hand, that pressure to change what you're doing because they think that evil is good and good is evil. 
and to keep a good reputation by changing what you're saying and what you're doing from good to evil. There's that. I've already hammered on that. The other aspect of it, though, is that there's these things like meat sacrifice to idols where there's this whole group of people that think that something is wrong and you must avoid doing it not for the sake of your own conscience but for the sake of their conscience. And so elders are held to a higher standard. And in fact, that's what we're told. Those who endeavor to teach are held to a higher standard. Not, let not many of you endeavor to be teachers. Why? Because you're going to be held to a higher standard. This is part of what that higher standard looks like. And so the church is to judge. Yes, the church is to judge in regard to who is to be an elder or not on the basis of these things. But also the church is to judge whether the behavior claimed in the accusations is actually sinful or not. We do not let the world decide whether the thing that you're doing is evil or not. They don't know. They get it wrong all the time. And so the church must judge whether this behavior is sinful or not. And it must be able to determine, you know, it must be able to discern between evil behavior, the appearance of evil, but not evil, and good. And, and react accordingly. The church also must judge whether the accusations are actually true or not. Whether the behavior actually has happened or not that's being claimed. Because remember, they like to slander. And this is as opposed to allowing the world to judge. And this is where I want to end. I want you to realize that when the text says they must have a good reputation with those outside the church, it does not say the world judges who is to be an elder on the basis of what the world wants and what the world thinks is good. The work is still given to the church to judge whether they have a good reputation with those outside the church. (laughs) You see that? And why is that work left to the church? Well, for all those reasons that I just got done saying, because the world slanders, the world gets it wrong, doesn't know right and wrong, and the world hates faithful preachers and teachers. And so if it's left to them, they'll only allow evil men to rule the church. So the church must judge. And if the church refuses to judge, then what happens is that damage is done not just to the faithful man, although he will be hurt. Remember the, remember the, the pain and the sorrow that Paul talks about the men causing harm to him did me much harm. That's such a sad thing. To think of a man like Paul and the sacrifices and the work and the, and the love that he had for the people of God constantly giving of himself and for the people not to care and to follow after a man who's just doing damage to him. And more than that, what happens is his ministry is harmed, which is not his ministry, but the ministry that he is engaged in is the gospel proclamation, the building of the church. And so if the church refuses to judge and simply gives over the judgment to the world on these things and says, well, you know, that that person's hated by the world, I guess we shouldn't follow them. 
if we let, it, if we let that be the, the, the world judging, that's what that is, the man is harmed and the ministry is undercut, the, the ministry of God's word. Because what you, what you end up doing is removing men who are willing to suffer the personal hatred of the world in order to proclaim the gospel from any leadership, from any ability to preach and teach. And instead, you leave it open, those positions, open for all of the men who are double-tongued. What a sad thing for that to be the ministry of the church. That's where the charge of hypocrisy ultimately comes from. When when we put double-tongued men into the pulpits, don't expect the watching world to have any respect for that. Don't expect it to be powerful for the gospel. Don't expect there to be growth in real fruit. But when the church stands behind those who are willing to suffer for the gospel and somehow have, yes, a good reputation with those outside the church, where the only thing the world can say about them is, I hate them because they're good. I'm going to say the good is bad. That's how much I hate it. Put men like that into ministry and watch what God does. Let's pray.